Hello and welcome to this uh, this week's episode of Build Value by Choice. I am your host, Nana Bonsu, President and CEO of Infinite Horizons Incorporated. I have an encore episode with Brian Trzinski. Brian is the Director of Business Market Development at Mass Mutual uh, Insurance uh, Company. Uh, welcome to the show, Brian. Hey, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Great, great. So we had a we had a great episode the last time. As always, you brought the energy, and you talked to you talked to us about how um, the income replacement value is good uh, for the business owner to know, because that essentially gives gives the business owner a reference point uh, to shoot for. Um, otherwise, it becomes like guesswork, like some kind of what you do. I've heard you put it before. It may not have the last episode, but previously about a country club, you know, you know, thing where it's like my buddy sold his or her company for this, and therefore mine is worth that. You know that kind of thing. It doesn't, you know, work out that way. But, but, and then of course, let's just say that you get your wealth management advisor or your financial advisor to give you um, the income replacement value. Um, it's not like you go to your broker or your um, certified availability advisor or your certified exit plan advisor or your certified evaluation analyst, right? Because different people use different uh, evaluation uh, methods. Um, so let's just say that in our case, uh, we use market value to to um, evaluate uh, companies. Um, now you know there's a gap, right? Your business doesn't have enough value to meet your income replacement needs. So how do you do that? You need to build enough, you know, based on the options that we talked about, building value in your business is probably your best bet because it's for chances that you probably have grown um, the, your portfolio or the, your net worth in the business to be worth probably like 80 to 90% of your worth based on uh, the survey from Exit Planning Institute. So the, the, the basic step that, you know, the, where we left off from the last episode was now let's talk about how do you manage your risk, right? Because now we know that your business is, is the biggest chunk of your net worth. And so the question is, how do you protect your business? And so that's what the, this week's episode you know, is about. And I'm glad to have Brian back to talk about it. Uh, so, Brian, um, I want to start off by you know, talking to you about, uh, and then, I, and then as, as, we, as we go along, I'll share some, some metrics and statistics that I pulled, um, both from your uh, Mass Mutual Business Perspective Study and also from the Exit Planning Institute surveys that, that I've seen. Um, is um, there a few, um, you know, factors that business owners, as far as when it comes to risk, or there's the personal risk, there's the financial risk, and there's the business risk. Um, what are some of the key risks that business owners need to de-risk their business uh, for? And then we talk about the scenarios as far as uh, depending on which scenario, uh, what risk, uh, de-risking methodology makes sense. Sure. So, so Nana, let's, let's remind folks kind of what the correlation between these two topics is, right? If you remember in, in our last episode, you know, when there's that income replacement gap, there's really three ways to address it, right? We can address it by growing the value of the business. We can address it by growing the value of assets outside the business, or we can adjust our lifestyle. And, and I, think, I think you're right. I think growing the value of the business is um, always going to be, you know, part of that process. Um, but in many instances, it can be a combination of all of them. But, you know, understanding that, you know, most businesses have a value gap. In other words, they're not operating best in class relative to their industry peers. There's probably value that they're leaving on the table because there's things happening operationally inside their business or other things 
that they can improve that will ultimately grow the value of the business. But before a business owner should embark on a strategy to do that, they've got to protect what they've already built. And we tell folks that, you know, we tell business owners all the time, before you can grow, you've got to protect. Um, because the investment of time and energy and money that you put into growing your business isn't going to be fully realized um, if there's significant risks that are evident in your business. Um, and, and we really, we categorize sort of that risk picture into four areas. Um, the first area is business risk. And that includes things like, you know, continuity planning, buy-sell planning, key employee uh, protection, those types of things, things that can really impact the business should something unexpected happen. But we also can't forget about personal risk um, and, you know, and family risk. So that's things like succession planning and successor development planning and uh, income, income replacement planning. Um, so we also have to make sure that the family and the owner is protected. And then we've got to protect the future. And that's a lot about what we talked about in our last episode, right? That's the future income. Um, that's the retirement income. That's the income replacement, all those things that we talked about. Um, that's the exit options, the exit strategies, right? That's the future of the business and protecting that. And then finally, we got to protect our team, right? We've got to have key employee uh, protection and key employee benefit strategies in place. Um, and, and whatever, whatever requires to make sure that those, those employees and those, those management teams that are so vital to the success of the business um, are taken care of. And, you know, one thing I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir to you on this, Nana, but the challenge oftentimes with business owners in addressing risk is if, that, is if we make that process too daunting, too complex, too time consuming, they do nothing. <laughs> so our job um, is, to, is to tackle this in bite-sized chunks and, and figure out where the biggest areas of risk are, whether it's in the business, the future, the personal, the team, and, and attack those first um, and, and, and do it in a systematized, in, in, in a, in a non-complicated and an attainable way for the business owner. Um, you know, and, and I'm sure we're going to get into what some of the, those, those solutions are as we go through the podcast, but I think that's a real good way to sort of set the stage when we're talking about risk and all the areas the owner has to look at. That's, that's, that's great. Uh, uh, thanks. Um, one thing that I wanted to kind of um, bring forth is just this um, idea of the multiple, right? And how the risk affects the multiple. So let's just say that, so if you can just kind of help us again, kind of walk through, because the last time you explained what a multiple is, but I want to kind of expand on that based on the risk profile, how that, you know, impacts the multiple and why de-risking is so important. So if you, if you have a risky business perceived by, say, an external buyer, even if you're not looking to sell, at least you use that as a way to assess how you, your business is worth in the marketplace. Um, if your business is risky and therefore is discounted by 50 percent, versus if you de-risk it and you're able to bring it down to say fifteen percent discount rate, right? That you know, in dollar terms, over like a five to ten year period for your um, for the net, net present value of your business, that's that's a lot of a lot of you know money that is uh, that is basically built in, even if you don't embark on some kind of value building or value acceleration, you know, uh, implementation, just de-risking alone, the kind of impact that will have on the multiple and the value of your business is huge. Oh, oh absolutely. You know, because we've got to, we've got to look at this from the perspective of the, of the acquirer. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, if someone's going to come in and, and make you an offer on your business, they want as little risk <laughs> to be evident in that business as possible, right? Because what makes a business attractive, what makes a business transferable, what makes a business sellable is its ability to generate future income and profits. And if an acquirer comes in there and sees all these risks, like, for example, an owner-dependent business, um, you know, not having sticky cust- you know, clients and customers, you know, you know, having the owner be the, the sales and marketing arm, um, you, know, not, you know, not having diverse suppliers, products, um, and customers, right? Those kinds of, that's, that creates risk in the mind of the acquirer. And a business that, as you say, may have a, a, a market value or an asset value, you know, of $10 million, once the acquirer or the potential buyer starts thinking about all these risks, we start to see that number get lower and lower and lower because they have to make sure that, you know, they're covering themselves um, should any of these risks that they're finding in the business um, you know, become evident when they take over the business. So, you know, a de-risking strategy um, is really about minimizing risk, not just for the owner, um, but also minimizing risk for, for any, you know, any future transaction or any future sale. Because I think we, I don't know if we shared this in the last episode or not, Nana, but, you know, we know the statistics around businesses that get put up for sale. And I think the exit mm-hmm. planning institute yeah, there's do. only about 20 of, 20, um, 20% of them ever actually transact. And even of the ones that do transact, half of them are going to transact at a price and terms that were below what the owner, I mean, what the current owner originally expected. And a lot of that stems from the fact that when they're going through the due diligence process, they're going through the, the, the M&A process, risks are uncovered. And that's impacting the sale price and that's impacting the terms. Um, so, you know, there's, there's, there's so many reasons why risk has to be addressed, um, both for today and also for the future of the business. Yeah, I mean that's uh, that is, and that's why I believe uh, I believe it was the, also the Exit Plan Institute uh, survey. It may have been the 2013 one or maybe the 2018 one that I saw, where like one year after owner's exit, about seventy percent, seventy five percent, three out of four actually have regrets, and mm-hmm. some of it probably has to do with some of these risks that you know they you know maybe some may have been too focused on the. The income that's coming from the business and the lifestyle that it supports that they didn't you know, pay enough attention to the de-risk and some of the de-risking strategies that uh, that you've talked about briefly that you know that we're going to get into some more uh, in the course of the of the show. Um, I, I I wanted to um, two things. One was I wanted to talk about this. So um, how does the the mindset shift between a lifestyle-based business, because the last time you talk about the lifestyle and the, and the value uh, the value business, right? Uh, where the lifestyle business owner essentially takes income from the business and support their lifestyle, you know, uh, rewards points. And he, he gives an example of one family that, that was um, using up, uh, didn't pay out of pocket for their vacation for a long time. And they were worried about how they were going to all of a sudden fund that. So, uh, versus somebody uh, that versus a business owner who's changed their mindset to look at their business as an asset, and therefore any asset needs to be uh, has a risk profile that needs to be managed. Can you tell us, you no, know, um, just the 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 de-risking, how that you know how mindset plays into the whole de-risking process? Yeah, so when a business owner comes to the conclusion or gets to the point where they they realize that their business is an asset that at some point in time they need to monetize. Um, because remember, a business isn't a liquid asset. And the, the goal of the business owner has to be to turn that illiquid asset 
into something that they can monetize when they're when they're ready to exit. And, and, and that means making it an asset that's transferable and sellable. And, you know, and, and unfortunately, a lot of business owners um, don't correlate the two. And, and there's, really t- there's really two pieces of information, two pieces of data that a business owner needs to understand to determine um, t- as what we call, um, you know, we, business owners can be one of two things. They can be, uh, you, know, ca- you know, business rich, cash accessible or they could be business rich, cash poor, right? In other words, they've got a business that's, that's generating great current income, but they're not gonna be able to monetize that when they exit, as opposed to the business owner that is generating, generating great current income and they built something that they're gonna be able to transfer someday that will continue to generate income. And, and the two factors that really go into that are number one, their chosen exit strategy. Right? I mean, if you've got a business owner that is going to be heavily re- reliant on the business to fund their future income in retirement, et cetera, gifting the business to the children probably isn't the right exit strategy, right? The other factor that gets overlaid into that is, is their multiple and, or their, you know, and, and there's a lot of tools out there that all sort of pinpoint, you know, we know, you know, I think we talked about this a little bit on the last um, podcast, but we know that within any given industry, um, there's a normalized trading range, right? So for example, if you're a manufacturing business, you're going to transact at between three or seven times your EBITDA, right? Um, and what we need to understand is what does your business look like underneath the hood? Are you best in class and, and could potentially transact at seven times? Or do you have some deficiencies in your business and you're going to transact at three times? And understanding where your business falls on that bell curve, on that normalized trading range, coupled with your chosen exit strategy, that's can, how you can really start to determine what's the likelihood of you being able to fully monetize this business. Um, but again, getting back to your question about risk, if you have a lot of risk evident in your business, then most likely you're going to transact at the lower end of that, of that trading range. So, so risk plays a factor in all of those things. Um, and, and de-risking the business is just one way um, that you can ensure that your business is going to be sort of best in class in your industry and, and ultimately trade at its highest possible multiple. That's great. Um, I wanted to ask you about size and the correlation to you know, perceived risk from, say, an acquirer or, or a hypothetical acquirer if you're not looking to sell anytime soon. Um, now, from a logical perspective, the bigger your company, the, more, um, the less risk um, a perceived buyer in general is just, you know, there's always exceptions uh, just because, you know, it's perceived that if you have a bigger company, chances that you have like a management team in place and other factors in place that help um, in a mitigate structural risk. How, how does a business owner who may not be interested in scaling um, de-risk, you know, given the factors of, um, you know, the, 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 the bigger the size in general, based on some, some metrics and st- statistics that are, that are out there, that um, bigger companies tend to, um, if, if on average uh, companies um, command, say, three times you know, EBITDA or three times multiple, um, the bigger companies could, you know, um, could um, garner maybe the high fours and the fives and, and the sixes in terms of multiple. Uh, can you um, just explain in terms of the, you know, what attitude or mindset around size and, and uh, whether or not, you know, scaling should be part of the uh, de-risking strategy or not? 
You mean you mean is is building a bigger business one right. way to right? Yeah, put in, I, put in a put in a, a the foundations in place as part of your de-risking because because making it bigger is part of growth, which 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 we're not talking about uh, in this episode at least. But it's just it's just from a risk perspective. I'm just talking about evaluation, the, the perceived risk from a from a buyer perspective who perceives bigger companies to be less risky, right, than smaller companies. So I'm just kind of looking at the risk angle for, from a smaller company versus a bigger company. Yeah, I mean, I, listen, everything's relative. I mean, I, I, I have, I've never actually seen that data. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I can't comment on whether it's accurate or not, but I, I, I don't necessarily believe that, you know, if you're a bigger company, um, that you're automatically going to be perceived as less risky. I mean, I, you know, I, I think that there, there's certain there's certain things that you know acquire. So I'm talking are, about for privately held companies. So just just that caveat, not not yeah, the public, yeah, yeah. No, no, I I, I get it. I right. and, and and I don't. I'm gonna. And I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm gonna answer this question the way you want me to. But I, I think this is an important point. Yeah. Because I, I I met like I said, I've never seen that correlation. But I but I think it's important to understand what adds value to a business. What's sort of neutral sort of the table stakes mm-hmm. and what detracts value, right? And I, and I really think that this is regardless of size, right? Because if, if I'm looking at a business as an acquirer, there's mm-hmm. certain things that a business will, should have or, or has that are going to make me, you know, want to increase that multiple. Obviously, it's things like the ability to grow. Like if they've, if they've, if they've capped out their growth, you know, that's, that's going to impact how I view them, right? They've got to have a dominant market share. They have to have a reoccurring revenue model. There have to be uh, difficult barriers to entry for other competitors. Um, they've got to be. Pr- they have to have product differentiation, um, and they've got to have a strong brand. A business, regardless of their size, if they have those things in place, they're going to be viewed as very attractive to an acquire, and that's going to enhance their value slash their multiple. There's a couple of things, Nana, that are sort of value neutral. Like when acquire comes in, these are the things that they expect to see. That's having strong sales and marketing. That's having good customer satisfaction. And that's having the ability to attract and retain employees, right? Those are kind of the table stakes things. And then there's the things that really will detract value. So in other words, if someone comes into the business and and analyzes it for for sale, if there's no senior management team in place, if their customers aren't diverse, in other words, they're very reliant on one or two key customers. And if they left, it's going to be an issue. Obviously, their legal, their financial, and their operations have to be in order. Um, and, you know, the, the potential market um, is not large enough, right? That kind of gets back to the growth thing. I mean, generally, Nana, if, if, that's kind of how I think we should look at these things. I don't necessarily, and it's all relative because a smaller business, if they have those things in place, um, you know, will be, will be viewed as just as less risky, <laughs> you know, as the bigger company that has those things in place. And I would argue too that, if a bigger, if a smaller business has all those things in place and a bigger business has half of those things in place, I still think that the smaller business is going to do better in a transaction. Yeah. Yeah. It's all about a valid driver. So, um, yeah. yeah. So on the last episode, you had mentioned about six exit options um, that a business owner have, uh, three internal and three external. I wanted, if you, if you may, just kind of walk us through, like, you know, if you look at it as a matrix and some kind of spectrum, just um, 
how each option, if an owner were to force to say liquidate or to sell to third party that in that range, what are the, the de-risking, corresponding de-risking uh, methodologies or strategies against each of those options? Yeah, I, I mean, let, let me even start even a little bit higher than that. There's, there's right. certain things that every business owner has to have in place from a de-risking strategy, regardless of what their chosen exit strategy is. If there are multiple owners there has to be a buy-sell agreement in place between the owners. Mm-hmm. Um, that, for those of you who don't know what a buy-sell agreement is, that's a legal document that stipulates that when some sort of triggering event happens, usually death, disability, divorce, um, a, an owner leaves for some reason or another, um, you know, or, 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 or whatever, something like that occurs in the business, that document will stipulate the terms under which the, the remaining owner um, will buy out that owner's share either from their heirs or from the owner themselves. Um, and that, that, that has to be in place um, because God forbid something happened to one of the owners. You know, the last thing the remaining owner wants to do is be in business with the survivor, the surviving heirs um, of that owner um, who may have no interest or no knowledge of how to run the business. Um, these documents have to be signed. These documents have to be funded and they really should be funded with insurance products because again, the last thing you want to have to do is liquidate business assets to fund that buyout. Uh, so that's number one. The other thing that business business owners have to have, regardless of their exit strategy, um, is, is 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 key employee protection and and key employee benefits, right? Because as we talked as we talked about both in the last podcast as well as in this one, your management team and your employees are vital to the future success of your business. So you've got to make sure that, you know, again, God forbid something happened to one of those key employees and they left your business for any reason, you have the ability to keep the business going as well as find a replacement key employee um, and you need the funding to do that. Same thing on the benefit side, right? We, you know, ben- the benefit landscape has changed. The benefit package that you put in place 30 years ago may not be the same benefits that employees want today. So constantly reviewing these and making sure things that you're offering whether it be you know health insurance, retirement savings plans, you know uh, supplemental disability insurance, supplemental life insurance, um, non-qualified deferred compensation plans, all these different. There's so many things that you can do to incentivize your um, your employees, and many of them can also help you as the owner save for your future retirement as well. Um, should always should always be reviewed. So those things have to be in place. Um, but in terms of Nana, getting back to your question about the different exit strategies. And how they impact it, you know. I think you know if you're gonna if your goal is to 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 create a legacy for your family, and you're gonna gift the business to your children, you've got to have assets outside the business, right? Because you're gonna you're gonna create a non cash transfer of that business, and you want to make sure that on the personal side, um, you know, you're taken care of. And you know, I, I, everybody always throws this this statistic out there, Nan. I'm sure you've heard it a million times. Yeah. That thirty um, percent of businesses don't survive past the second generation, and we are always so quick to say, "Well, it's because the, the 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 next generation of children didn't know how to run the business and they ran it into the ground." And everybody's always so quick to blame the next generation for that statistic. I go on record all the time and saying, "While there may be some truth to that, I believe that the real reason why thirty percent of businesses don't make it through the second generation." is because the current owners, the parents, gave them an asset that wasn't ready to transfer. And the, and the children were set up to fail because they created a business. you got to view it like you're going to sell it. Even though you're gifting it, you still have to take the same approach. You're still creating a transferable asset. 
And just because you're gifting it instead of selling it doesn't mean that you shouldn't have all those same de-risking strategies in place. Make it easier for your kids. And, and I guarantee that that statistic will change. Um, so, you know, I, 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 I'm a firm believer in, in making sure that even if you're gifting the business, um, which isn't always the right exit strategy, but that could be another podcast. <laughs> um, you got to make sure that you're still creating a transferable asset. Um, same thing if you're going to do some kind of inside buyout where, where, where a co-owner or a key employee is going to buy the business. Again, chances are, especially if it's a key employee, they're not going to have cash to buy you out in one lump sum. You're going to have to do some kind of installment buyout. You're going to have to take back paper, something like that, because they're not going to have the bulk of cash. So again, you've got to make sure that you've got protections outside the business. You can't be reliant on how well that key employee runs your business um, to fund your retirement. So that's another thing to keep in mind. And you know, Nana, an unfortunate sad statistic is sometimes great key employees don't make good entrepreneurs. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and I think it's a sad reality that owners need to recognize that they, they, they regardless of, of um, the exit strategy they're chosen, whether it's selling it to a key employee, gifting it, they've got to make sure that they've got those assets outside the business. Should something unfortunate happen and the business doesn't continue to be successful when they step away. Yeah, the whole left brain, right brain thing. Um, so I'm going to go into lightning round. Um, okay. <laughs> how do we de-risk against owner dependency? Because you did mention about that, you know, the owner in terms of owner death, this, this um, departure, you know, disability. Because um, you did mention disability as more. I think it was a previous episode. Disability is actually more frequent than than death, and and folks usually don't plan for that. So, how do we de-risk against owner dependency? Yeah. Owners have to go into this saying to themselves, my, my job, my role is to make myself as redundant in this business as possible as soon as I can. Right. And that, that, well, what, if, what that, if it's my baby? Well, what if I'm the owner? It doesn't, that's all I know. I don't have life outside the business. It, that, that's not an excuse. <laughs> it can, it, listen, it can still be your baby and it can still be your life, but that doesn't, but you can still have a number two who can run the business and knows all the things that you know. Um, you know, it's, it, you can't, business owners want to do everything. They want to control everything. They want to know everything that does not create a transferable business. It also creates issues for the business. If the owner dies or becomes disabled or something unfortunate happens like that, there needs to be somebody that can step in that can run the business at least close as, as, as close as well as the owner did. Um, and, and, and that, that creates that that's how you create, um, you know, a, a business that's not owner dependent. You've got to, you, owners have to be willing to delegate and share responsibilities and train people to do what they do. How do you de-risk against supplier, you know, supply chain risk? We know there's a lot of supply chain disruptions and supply chain issues going on right now. How do you de-risk against supplier concentration and supply chain uh, issues? Yeah. I mean, we, we talked about this. Diversification is huge and it's not just with suppliers. It's with customers. It, 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 it's, with, it's with vendors. It's with products and services. Diversification is probably one of the most important things a business owner has to understand. You cannot be reliant on one or two suppliers. You cannot be reliant on one or two customers and you cannot be reliant on one or two products or services. Because like you said, it's something like we're dealing with right now where there's supply chain issues or a customer decides that they're going to go to the competitor. You have to make sure that you can, you can, you know, you can weather the storm of losing one of those suppliers, you know, uh, customers, et cetera. 
Um, if you got all your eggs in just one basket, one supplier basket, one customer basket, that is not going to be viewed favorably by someone who's looking to acquire your business. You have to diversify in all those areas. How do you de-risk against uh, labor shortages and key employee dependency? Well, a key employee dependency is a good thing, <laughs> right? We should, we should be dependent upon our key employees, right? That, that's getting back to that whole not being you know, owner dependent when you're key employee dependent. Um, but, you know, la la labor shortages, you know, that's, I, I got to be honest with you, that's not really my area of expertise. Um, all, all I can really tell you in that arena is that you want to make sure that you're the employer of choice in your given industry. And it really all gets back to having good benefit plans, having, you know, uh, you know, having good work environment, having a good culture, um, having, having a business that people can rally behind and get behind and want to be a part of, you know, your mission, like that's very important to employees these days. So just making sure that when you're out there trying to recruit and attract good talent, you've got a good story to tell about your business. Um, and you have, you can offer them the ability to, to, to grow professionally, protect their family, safe for the future. Um, those are the kinds of things that are going to help you sort of be the employer of choice um, as you're looking to, you know, enhance staffing and, and, and attract key employees. How do you de-risk against inconsistent revenue? Because, um, you know, you could have like COVID or you can have some system, global systemic financial crisis from 2008, 2008. I'm sure there's probably going to be another one coming. And so if somebody were looking at the trailing three-year revenue cycle, chances are, you know, the business owner's revenue probably took a hit last year. But some owners did well. Some owners, uh, their revenue either went up or at least, you know, was staying relatively close to the same. So how do you de-risk against uh, inconsistent revenues due to macroeconomic and global issues? Well, well, even more basic than that, Nana, I mean, some businesses, you have the seasonality of businesses, right? I mean, we don't even have to look at it from, you know, global pandemics to just look at, a, you know, these businesses that have seasonal revenue and, you know. And, and, and there's, there, there's two ways that business owners have to look at. They have to protect themselves personally, financially, and then, of course, they have to, you know, create, you know, transferability for if, if they go to sell. So when you're dealing with these businesses that have, you know, seasonal revenue or, or have to deal with, with things that impact their income on the, on the personal side, though, you have to have that emergency fund. You know, we, you know we're, we're revamping our study um, that you've referenced many of the st statistics from, and we're revamping it as we speak. And we've talked to a lot of business owners already. And they tell us that if it wasn't for the savings that they've been putting away, the emergency funds that they build, you know, six months, you know, 12 months of, of emergency funds, they wouldn't be able to weather, you know, the storm. They wouldn't be able to continue. So on the personal side, having that emergency fund, at least six months, 12 is best, <laughs> um, of cash that you can draw on to, to get through those to get through those issues. But when you're running a seasonal business and you having, you know, that all again gets back to diversification of product and services. You know, what can you do in those down seasons um, to generate revenue? Maybe it's not going to be as much revenue as you're generating during your high season, but is there something you can offer to your customer base during those slower seasons that at least keep the revenue kind of going in, right? Because you're going to make your big influx of of, of, of income and, and revenue during the summer, for say, but what can you do in the winter that so you're not depleting all of that that you built up during the summer. So having those having those thoughts about diversification again on the products and services side is beneficial both for on the personal, but also in terms of making your business more transferable. What is the best case and the worst case scenario for a business owner when it comes to risk? 
that you don't have any. <laughs> no, I mean, in all seriousness, there's always going to be risk. That's evident. We can't, we can't, we can't solve for every risk that's out there. It's, it's, it's foolish to think that we can. Um, but the best thing that we can do is make sure that we're, we're covering ourselves for the most, from the most common. Um, you know, whether that be, and you, you know, the five that we talk about the five D's, everybody has their versions of the five D's, you know, our version of the five D's are death, disability, divorce, departure, and disqualification, right? So making sure that those are covered. So God forbid something unfortunate happens to an owner or to a key employee, there's a plan in place to keep the business going. Um, we can't control the macroeconomics as you were talking about. We, we can't control that, right? We can't control competition, um, coming into the market. We just have to be ready that when that do, when those things do happen, whether it's setting up, a, you know, setting up emergency funds, whether it's diversifying our customers, our products and our suppliers, um, doing those things, not being owner dependent, just making sure that we have um, that we have those those plans in place for when those things happen. And, and, and really, Nana, no, the only way business owners can do that is by doing a full assessment of their business. Right. A business owner has to go through an exercise with a professional to understand where their where their risks lie. You know, they shouldn't try to figure it out on their own. There's professionals that do this kind of work that can sit down with a business owner, take them through questionnaires, take them through fact finding to uncover where their exposure is. And then the business owner can take that information and build a strategic action plan to address those issues and de-risk these, those four areas I talked about at the outset as much as they possibly can. Final question. What is the biggest, um, what are the biggest obstacles that prevent owners from de-risking their business? <laughs> Themselves. Um, I mean, that, that, and, that, and I, that, that one I'm not saying as, as a joke. That is, that is the truth. It, it is themselves. And, and, and we see this all the time. You know, business owners, when we, when we approach them with issues of risk, it's always a lack of perceived need. Nah, I don't need to worry about that. It's a lack of time to address it. Ah, I'm so focused on what's coming down the pike in my business. I don't have time to address those things. And it's, the, and it's the assumption that these things cost too much money, right? I don't have money to put towards paying for these types of services. But the reality is, is you, you, you can't. You, you can't kick this, this can down the road um, because every business owner is going to exit their business either by design or by default. And we can start planning for these issues at any time. And the sooner we do it, the better. Um, so, you know, but again, I understand, as I said earlier, a lot of professionals, unfortunately, make these things too complicated, too complex, too daunting and too unattainable for business owners. I get that. And that forces them to do nothing. So I think our accountability in this, Nana, as advisors and professionals is to make sure that business owners understand that, yes, you can accomplish this. It's not that complicated. And there are people out there that can help you do it right. Um, and I think if we as a as, a, as, as those professionals that they rely upon for that kind of advice can, can, do, a, can do a good job of, of, of getting that message in front of them, I think we'll start to see more business owners willing to, to tackle these issues and, and, um, and, and not be their own worst enemy when it comes to, comes to handling risk. Yeah, I know. I mean, that, that's, that's a great point. I mean, I think, I think you, you, you basically kind of tied a knot on it nicely. And um, it, essentially, and if I were to quickly kind of summarize, which is the next steps for, for business owners. Um, some of the takeaway, key takeaways is they need to make sure they get evaluation done, some kind of assessment or evaluation done that will help them uh, uncover some of the risks that they need to, you know, you know create action plans to de-risk against. Um, they need to probably work with a, 
a professional advisor, whether it's a certified value builder advisor or a certified exit planning advisor or their wealth management advisor, somebody who can help work with their different advisors, their legal advisor for like buy sell agreement or or some other you know some other thing. That way, um, they have somebody who can shield them or be a buffer for some of the you know, complexities, uh, some of the things um, that are perceived to be complex, uh, and somebody who just kind of help them navigate uh, through that and kind of work with their advisors as a team for the, on behalf of the business owner. Uh, are there any other like, you know, um, actionable items that, or, or where's the wisdom that you, you know, you can leave our audience with? Yeah. The, the other thing I, I would say to those of you out there that have these agreements and have these documents and have these plans in place, they need to be reviewed and updated at least every three years. Um, you know, just because you did do a buy-sell agreement, you know, 20 years ago when you opened up the business, you know, doesn't mean um, it's still, you know, accurate and still accounts for all the things that have changed, changes in business value, changes in family relationship, changes in ownership relationships. So I know we've talked a lot about those that don't have these agreements, but even those that do, um, you have to make sure that you're reviewing them periodically, like, like I said, at least every three years, um, because we've seen a lot of issues um, over the years where, you know, those documents get pulled out of the filing cabinet and they're, they're stale, they're old. And, and, and unfortunately, it creates conflict and issues with the remaining owners, with the departing owners, with the families of the departing owners. And the last thing, the last thing we want to see happen both um, when, these things, when these things happen, listen, they're, they're, they're hard enough as it is. We don't need to create discord in the family and we don't need to do anything that's going to jeopardize the continuity of the business. Um, so we got to make sure that these documents are up to date and reviewed. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's great. And I guess once they've taken all this wisdom that you've shared, uh, into, into, uh, consideration and did risk their business, then they will be nicely set up for growing value, which we can talk about maybe in a future episode, or, or maybe you can come back after your study. I know you say you're updating your study. Maybe we can yes. talk about the findings. Definitely. So that would be great. Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, and, um, you know, talk to you in the future soon. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, till next week. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye.